To make it in cannabis, first you must dare to. Twelve years ago, MJ BizCon dared to unite the global cannabis community, igniting a movement that continues to thrive. So let's grow together this November 28th through December 1st in Las Vegas. You'll hear incredible stories, see groundbreaking innovations, and forge connections you need to thrive in 2024. But wait, snag your ticket to MJ BizCon in October. And you are eligible for the 31 days of giveaways and promotion going on right now. So hurry, get your ticket today. And here's a secret. Podcast listeners get 10% off with promo code 23POD10. That's 23POD10. Don't miss out. Get your ticket at mjbizcon.com. That's mjbizcon.com. You're listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Elland. We'll get to our guest momentarily, but first, Corey and I would like to take a moment to reach out to you, our listeners, and ask for your help. We started doing these podcasts in the middle of October and love what we do, right, Corey? Oh, we sure do, absolutely. And I think it's so important to get this information out there to people and share these stories so people can help themselves or a loved one with cannabis. It certainly saved my life. Exactly, it did. But to create this podcast, there's a lot of work, time, and day-to-day expenses that go into it. This is our job. It's what we do, and we want to continue doing it. But we need to be able to sustain it through donations from our listeners. And we'd also like to be able to go live at least once a week and take calls from listeners, and we can help a lot more people that way. So what we need to do is raise some funds to be able to get that started. And going live is something we're very interested in, but uh, we need some different equipment for that. So to support us, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and go to the Donate page. You'll see a Donate button where you can make a donation in any amount. No amount is too small. Yeah, please, buy us a cup of coffee. Absolutely, that would be nice. There are other options there as well, including our Patreon link, where you can make a monthly donation of as little as $3, just 3 bucks a month, and you'll get various rewards for that. And we thank you in advance for your generosity. On this episode, we're going to hear the fascinating story of Robert Platchior, an author, speaker, and advocate for the legalization of marijuana. What makes his story unique is that in 1979, he was sentenced to 64 years in prison for smuggling Colombian marijuana into the United States. He spent almost 30 years in prison and was released in late 2008. Robert Platchorn is the author of Black Tuna Diaries, as well as his second book, Greed and Evil, and he joins us from Florida. Robert, good of you to do this. Thanks very much. Good of you to invite me, and you got all the facts right. That's unusual. That's a good start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I used to do this for a living before they fired me. After being released from prison uh, for nearly 30 years in prison for selling a plant that has never killed anyone, was there any anger in you at law enforcement for taking away nearly half your life? 
No, I was too busy looking uh, to the future, trying to figure out what I was going to do, how I could help prevent other people from going through what I went through, getting out my book, Black Tuna Diaries, working on the movie Square Grouper with uh, Raconteur Films, the people who did Cocaine Cowboys, and going out on a book tour, and uh, I was a pretty busy guy. So the interesting thing about that is that I, I sense that you're, you're a, a very smart guy from what I've read. And you decided that what happened, happened. It's now no point in uh, being remorseful about it. Let's just continue on our life's journey and do something that is constructive. Do I have that right? Yeah, I don't know that remorseful would have been the right description. Okay. Uh, I probably... Uh, would have been full of anger and, and hatred, and I just didn't have time for those things. And they're not a lot of fun anyway. No, that's very true. You yeah. know, and I was very fortunate. I remarried my wife, my childhood sweetheart. I had lots of job offers in the pitch business to go out and uh, make infomercials and demonstrate pots and pans. I got writing assignments from High Times and the New York Times. You know, I was able to keep busy. None of them made a lot of money, but I was able to get on my feet and went out on uh, a book tour as soon as Black Tuna Diaries uh, was in print. Robert, let's go back to the early part of your life. At a very early age, you were one of America's most famous pitchmen, and then you moved to London, England. Tell us what you did there. I went to London, actually, on a holiday. The woman I'm married to now, who was my childhood sweetheart, had graduated NYU and was working uh, in London for J. Arthur Rank Organization, Rank Films. And I went over for a three-week holiday and ended up starting the very first speed reading schools in England, Holland, and Germany. I started a company called Dynamic Reading. And started the first school in a hotel in London in, in a small hotel room with a conference table and a few chairs. And after just three short years, I had 14 schools in England, Holland, Germany. I had my own teachers in Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, London University, and even had a teaching room in the House of Lords that they had given me so that I could teach uh, the MPs dynamic reading. Wow, that's a, quite an accomplishment. How yeah, did, and I, and how I did you... do a little bullfighting in Spain in, uh, on vacations, and I enjoyed Europe and uh, had a good business there. Now, when you moved back to the United States, what got you involved in smuggling marijuana? Ah, I went back to the pitch business. Now, I came back to the States, and I set up, one of the biggest distributorships for Breyer's ice cream. I invented a, a push cart that could hold ice cream at a dipping temperature and send it out into the business districts. That was about six months out of the year that that operated. And the rest of the time, I went back to demonstrating Vitamixes and tea found no-stick cookware at all the big home shows and fairs. And I had a friend out on the fairs who lived in Miami and was occasionally driving loads for a man he worked for, loads of small loads of Colombian from Miami where they were flying it in to Philadelphia. 
and he was looking for customers. I helped him find a few customers, and that kind of started it off. Not long after, I closed up the ice cream business to go back to law school at the University of Miami, and I moved back to South Florida, and South Florida was just a hotbed of smuggling, mostly from Colombia, a little bit from Jamaica, and I tried to set up the ice cream business there so that I had an income, but I could never get the right licenses. And I got chased from pillar to post and eventually just sold off the push carts and the freezers and needed a way to make some money while I was in school. And so I started out what was called in the pot business middling. People who were smuggling, mostly Cubans, would bring me loads and I'd find them customers. I was the middleman. Eventually, uh, someone came to me with a scheme to smuggle. And that sounded uh, much more profitable, much more exciting. And I gave it a good look and decided to go into the smuggling business. We managed to raise a couple of hundred thousand dollars from the people we had been selling to for a future load to smuggle in. And the people who originally brought me the proposition weren't able to secure a load in Colombia. So here we are, we've spent a ton of money that our customers have put up and nothing's happening over on the Colombian side. And so uh, jumped on a plane and went to Colombia. My partner, Robbie, and I, uh, the guy I grew up with on, on South Street in Philadelphia, we flew over to Barranquilla and sure enough, within hours, we were approached and... Uh, spend a couple of days there meeting people and arranging for a small plane load to be put on a field between Barranquilla and Santa Marta, a field up above a lake called La Cienega, which is the lake. It was an exciting time, and, and the whole story is in uh, Black Tuna Diaries. In fact, every smuggle we did, is uh, the stories are all in there from beginning to end, from first smuggle to last, from first dollar to last. I made good friends in Colombia, and we did a couple of plane loads, and then we did some boat loads, and then we folded it up. We had set a goal that each partner uh, would make a million bucks, and then we'd retire, and we did. A year later is when the indictment came down after we had left the business. Damn. Yeah, a million dollars back then was uh, a significant amount of money as opposed to a million dollars today. When you when you wrote your book, Black Tuna Diaries, by the way, Robert, where can people find that book? Uh, BlackTunaDiaries.com or GreedAndEvil.com. Both books are on the Greed and Evil site uh, with a good short pricey about each book. If you want to look at some chapters from Black Tuna Diaries, there's a couple of them up on the other site, blacktunadiaries.com. And both books are also available from thesilvertour.org. As you know, the Silver Tour is a nonprofit I started in order to teach seniors the value of medical marijuana. 
Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that uh, in a few moments. But I want to g- get back to your book, The Black Tuna Diaries. Many of the characters are named uh, in the book. And in a list of other important characters is the name Donald Trump. Tell me about that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now I remember. You know, it's funny. Very often when I go to book signings or TV interviews, I have to go back and read my own book. that made me feel really odd but i've since spoken to a lot of authors who say exactly the same thing that they don't really recollect what they wrote or remember that they covered a subject but we were going to bring a load in to trump's first casino because it was way down at the end of atlantic city And at that time, it was the only thing down there. There was a marina that uh, I believe that he had conned the county into building or the city. And it was pretty much empty, as was his casino. And I was told that he desperately needed money. I met briefly with him, told him what we were going to do. And he wanted to be a partner. That actually scared me. (laughs) well i i had never really heard anything about him uh that made me want to associate with him i had followed his career from when he uh swam over the east river from brooklyn and declared himself the greatest real estate man in the world and then proceeded to lose about 200 million of his father's money yeah, an interesting story. You've you've also named uh, some other people in uh, in your book. The other important characters: Frank Sinatra, uh, Baron Rothschild, uh, Joe Louis, the Queen of England, and Prince Charles. What was that all about? Just the reception line: the Queen of England and Prince Charles. My, as I said, uh, my current wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, Lynn was working for uh, J. Arthur Rank Rank Theatres. And we got to go to all the world premieres. And uh, that was at the world premiere of Romeo and Juliet. The funny thing was, she went with another Rank executive, and I was kind of the guy who was an available escort. And I escorted... One of the Redgrave sisters. I can't remember if it was Lynn Redgrave or what's her sister's name. I knew you would ask me that question, and I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm reaching for it as you were Lynn Redgrave and Vanessa yeah, Redgrave. Yes. Vanessa. Vanessa Redgrave. That's Lynn right. was the one in Georgie Girl, right? That's right. Yep. That was my date that night. I, you know, I I was like. Uh, an available escort, and I got to go to a lot of tremendous uh, events. And I remember at the reception line for Romeo and Juliet, Prince Charles, uh, who was it? Beautiful, beautiful woman who was in the reception line, and he decided to hold up the line so he could talk to her. And the queen kept giving him the elbow. <laughs> <laughs> How did you deal with, uh, what were your your dealings with the Rolling Stones? Not much. They used to crash my parties. Typical. Yeah, it was. Uh, I can't really recall anything more to say about it, except they'd always surprise me. Uh, One or two of them would show up, 
And I really can't even figure out how they knew about my parties. They weren't that famous. <laughs> <laughs> I had a nice muse house in London where I lived, or at least in, in my last six months there. I started out living in a really bad bed and breakfast. But I had a nice little muse house, and I was fairly well known. I had been on the Eamon Andrews show and, and some of the other TV shows, and I was considered a, a successful executive. I was honored at a dinner by the uh, mayor of London. So I had some I had some interesting parties. I mean, things were good over there. It, it was during the height of British music, and uh, but the, that was pretty much it for the Rolling Stones. It never went beyond them crashing the party and, and me meeting them. Robert, when you were sentenced to 64 years in prison, take me through that day that uh, you received your sentence. Oh, boy. Uh, you get to make a statement before you're sentenced, and it's called an allocution. In my case, it was more like an electrocution. There was very little in the case that wasn't trumped up, that wasn't exaggerated. There was very little in the case that was true. And I decided to uh, go through the statement of facts and, and disown them and criticize the judge for allowing them in. And, well, I just let it all out and paid the price. Actually, I think... He had planned to give me that sentence anyway, so maybe I didn't make it worse, but boy, I let him have it. Now, you were in prison for almost 30 years, and you served in 11 prisons. Why did they move you around? In the American, in the federal prison system, they don't want you to get too comfortable. And just as a matter of course, every three to six years, you're likely to get shuffled somewhere. It's a problem for some people because they want to stay close to their families, where their families can visit. And all of a sudden, they're a couple of thousand miles away without rhyme or reason. I started out in the Supermax in Marion, and I should have never been there. I, I quaid as a low. I had no prior convictions. I had no violence. But... They put me in the Supermax because it was a high-publicity, high-profile case. And boy, what a scary place that was. Robert, do you get, uh, how much notice would they give you that they're going to move you from one prison to another? They usually come around at about four in the morning and tell you you have 15 minutes to get your shit together and uh, get going. Wow, so not, not even time to like phone your family and say, hey, I'm out of here? Definitely not. They wow. don't want any communication just as a matter of uh, security. Security, okay. Well, you call security, you know. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's part of their protocols. Mm. Robert, what was the worst time in prison for you? Ah, how about the scariest time? Okay, scariest we'll go with time. that. Yep. Will we go for that? We'll go with that, Robert. Okay, I, after uh, about 10 or 12 years was in a prison in North Carolina. It was actually an experimental prison, Butner, Butner, North Carolina, which is now a big mega prison with uh, camps and penitentiaries. And at that time, it was a single prison 
that had all level of prisoners and it was run by the psychology department. It was a little bit like a college campus. They had one of the lowest recidivist rates and you could only get there by lottery. In other words, you, it was not a place you could ask to be sent. Okay. And it was a very desirable place. I had three fairly comfortable years there. And then they got a new warden. And this warden was determined to get rid of every prisoner that had been in a high-level prison just to protect his own back, whether there was any reason or not. And when he found out I had been in the Supermax in Marion, uh, and that was the only Supermax back then, he was determined to get me out of there. There was never a reason given, but they had me thrown in the hole uh, in segregation. And I'm there for, I don't know, about a month and a half. And all of a sudden, they let me out. And I go back to population, go back to my job in the kitchen. And I'm out in the rec field, and I hear them page me back to the kitchen. And I knew something was a little strange because I had already had everything set up for the lunch meal. I had signed my safety sheets and my pay sheets, and there was no reason to get me back there. When I got to the kitchen door, there were two lieutenants and four guards, and they grabbed me. And took me into R&D where they dress you in or dress you out. And sitting in R&D was all my property. They had gone into my cell and thrown it all in a couple boxes. And they took me out and put me in a van by myself. There was an armed guard in the front. There was a chase car with two armed guards and a lead car with an armed guard. Now, I had just spent three years in a pay-em-no-mind kind of a nice place. And here I am under heavy security, heading down the road. And I'm asking, where am I going? Where are you taking me? And I get absolute silence. Mm. That gets scary. They pull up under an, an overpass on an expressway. They open the door and tell me to get out. Really? Are you are you in handcuffs? Oh yeah, I'm handcuffed. Got leg irons, belly chain. Wow. Uh, can barely move my feet, and they tell me to get out of the van and virtually at gunpoint. And I get out of the van, and the van and the chase car and the lead car take off. I am standing under the expressway, all chained up, and I think, this is where they're going to kill me. Why else would I be there? About a minute after they leave, I'm standing there. I don't know whether to shit or go blind. I hear a voice from way up under the overpass saying, walk forward, come up here. We, we have you covered. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, because, you know, if you look up under an overpass, it's dark up there. And that was a very, very scary, slow trip up this fairly steep concrete slope to the overpass. 
and there's two marshals there. One's got his handgun out, and one is holding a shotgun. I figured, oh shit, this is the end. It's it's all over. Should I try to run? I said, well, where the hell can I run in leg irons and handcuffs and and a belly chain? And they were just sitting on a concrete abutment up at the top in the dark. Somehow they had pulled the marshal's car up on the side of the overpass, and I hadn't seen it. And after about a minute of just looking at me, probably trying to scare me to death and and very successfully, they put me in the marshal's car and took me to Petersburg, Virginia, a medium-high prison in Petersburg. You know, Robert, listening to you tell that story, uh, it gives me chills. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Boy. Yeah, there's, there's lots of prison stories. Some are scary. Uh, I tried not to write dark stories. Mm-hmm. A lot of funny things happened in prison. I met a lot of interesting people. And when I wrote Black Tuna Diaries, I didn't want to depress people. I did not want people to feel sorry for me. Uh, it sounds like you've read the book and you know most of the stories are, are up-tempo. So I tried not to make prison as depressing as it could be. But of course when I was there I tried to make it not as depressing as it could be. Robert, the day you were the day you were released and you you finally get out of handcuffs, leg irons, and you walk out the door, what was that like for you? Hard to process. I was looking forward to it. Like most of the other things in my life, it almost didn't happen. It it, it turned out to be kind of a, a frightening day in that I thought they weren't going to let me out. I had been warned that there was to be no press, no photographers, no television stations uh, when I walked out the door. My nephew, uh, who works in major motion pictures, he's a sound man, showed up with a documentary filmmaker with a big-ass Sony camera on his shoulder. I was in a holding cell in another building, and it was hours past my release time. Everybody else who was going to be released that day, most of who were supposed to be released after me, had been released. And now I'm all alone in this holding cell thinking, oh, shit, I'm dead. They're not going to let me go. I was going to a halfway house, and they could take that away from you fairly easily. And then somebody came in with a name I didn't recognize who turned out to be the documentary maker. And they said, is this guy a relative of yours? I said, yeah, he's my uncle. (laughs) They said, well, he's got a big camera. I said, oh, I didn't know that. And uh, I got out. Wow. (laughs) Robert, you spend a lot of time now educating seniors on the medical benefits of cannabis. What gave you that idea to do that? That's what needed to be done. Um, That's a short answer. After I'd been out on the road and I was at Hempfest in Seattle, up on the main stage, had about 6,000 people in front of me. And I'm telling stories and having a good time and and the audience is laughing and clapping. And I had a for real epiphany. 
And I just stopped dead. And I said, you know, I'm wasting my time. You people are on my side. I need to be making my pitch to the rest of the people if we're going to ever get this legal. And the audience looked at me for a minute and then they began to clap. And I spent a couple of months trying to figure out what I could do without any funds, using my talent and what little fame I had at the time. The movie was coming out and I knew I'd have some opportunity. And I was helping out trying to pass Prop 19 in California. When it failed, I knew that something terrible had happened and that it would set back legalization for years. And of course it did. When I was trying to explain to people why they had to pass Prop 19, I told them the first thing that's going to happen if this fails is they're going to go back and start raiding dispensaries again. And everybody told me, butt out, we've had, you know, legal medical for 15 years. You don't know what you're talking about. I said, if anybody knows the federal government, I do. And sure enough, within 30 days of of when it failed, the raid started. Not only dispensaries, but the grows. And they took it uh, as a mandate. Because it failed, they figured uh, they could get away with starting to tear it down. But I looked at the exit polls to see why it failed. As I remember, it failed by about 6%. And virtually every exit poll told me two things. That it was a by-election, which means the only people who came out in numbers were seniors, Latinos, new citizens who value their vote. And it was seniors that voted it down. And I thought about that for a minute and I said, hey, that's my generation. We virtually invented marijuana as it's known today. And I really couldn't understand it. And I looked at it a little closer and I saw that there wasn't one single organization who was reaching out or talking to seniors. And the only input that seniors had had was a series of radio commercials and billboards put up by the alcohol industry saying that aren't there enough drunks on the road? Do we need stoners? And and that was their whole anti-campaign back then. What kind of response do you get from seniors when you talk to them about cannabis? Do they still have this reefer madness mentality, many of them? Really, no. When I put on a silver tour show, especially in the beginning, I would have 100 to 200 seniors in the audience. It would usually be at an active senior community, what we call in Florida an over 55 community. And first of all, you're talking to people who smoked way back in the day. Don't admit it, but I knew to begin with it, it was mostly bringing people out of the closet, destroying the myths and destroying whatever inhibitions they had about admitting that they really like pot. I knew that was the mission. So I'd bring a doctor who'd explain that, you know, there's no downside, but an awful lot of upside, especially for seniors. And they'd go through all sorts of things uh, that bother seniors. 
and the fact that every senior is on six to 12 medications, half of them to counter the effects of the other half, and, and how cannabis could replace so many of them. I bring patients who would explain their own experience with cannabis and lawyers to tell them how to change the law rather than break the law. The shows, if I had 100 people, I had 99 sign up, uh, would sign a petition or agree to call. In fact, I did one at a big synagogue in Boca Raton. I had 200 people in the audience. It was a Sunday and Monday was a holiday, but we asked everybody in the audience to make two phone calls to two committee heads where there was legislation pending, but they couldn't call till Tuesday. When we checked back late Tuesday with the two offices, we found that each of those offices had over 190 phone calls mm. on that subject. So that that kind of tells you the kind of response we had. Uh, when I started the Silver Tour, Florida, where I live, polled very much in favor of medical marijuana with the up to 35s, uh, still in favor 35 to 65, and very much against 65 and over. Today, 65 and over polls in favor. When I realized I couldn't reach enough people putting on live shows, even though each of those shows got a lot of publicity, I mean, Wall Street Journal put one of the shows on the front page. That helped get over the uh, reticence to come out of the closet. And uh, CNN did a special that was shown all over the country of one of my live shows. And then the best one of all was the funny one. John Stewart's Daily Show came in and, and filmed, uh, videoed, an entire live silver tour show and it was the feature segment on one of their shows called uh, old tokes home <laughs> <laughs> but all of those things together work to make seniors comfortable with the subject interested enough to start looking for information on their own and of course i made a tv show of the silver tour show it was called should grandma smoke, smoke pot? pot? Yes. Yeah. And I managed to air it well over 200 times, maybe more, with donations. I aired it in infomercial slots because I'm an old infomercial producer. I had access to TV slots that only cost me from 50 to about 500 bucks for half hours on good stations. You can reach a lot of people following the golden girls or after some uh i was after uh what's her name uh she started her own network i'm having a, a senior moment oprah 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 yeah on a lot of those stations i was on either right before or right after oprah Robert, let me ask you a final question. The Canadian government has promised to legalize marijuana by May of next year. Do you think marijuana will be legalized in our lifetime by the federal government in the United States? Yes, I do. I think we're getting very close to the tipping point. If Hillary is elected, if the Dems stay in, you know, they've promised to uh, 
adopt most of uh, Bernie's platform. They've agreed to allow the states to continue to legalize, whereas the Republican platform, as you should know, vows to shut down all the legal states. People may not be all that aware of it, uh, but the Republican plank, the Republican platform, is to close down all medical and recreational marijuana. Trump's running mate, Pence, and of course the guy who was going to be his attorney general, Christie, both said they're going to start arresting all marijuana users on day one. However, I have faith that we're going to elect a Democrat. I think it'll be as it was with Prohibition. Once the scale is weighed down heavily on our side, then they will fairly quickly look for a way to legalize it. And uh, we're getting close. We may hit that in this election. Robert, uh, tell people again how they can get copies of your books, Black Tuna Diaries, and your second book, Greed and Evil. Black Tuna Diaries, as you know, is a memoir, and it's a damn good read. It's in its seventh printing, smuggling stories, stories of my years in Europe, and uh, my years as a pitchman, and, and years in prison. Greed and Evil is the story of why marijuana is illegal, where the money's really coming from, who's putting it up, what's happening with private prisons and why they'll disappear the day that marijuana is legalized. Both of them are available at greedandevil.com or blacktoonadiaries.com or thesilvertour.org. And by all means, go to thesilvertour.org and help us with our campaigns. Robert, it was great to talk to you. We should do this on a regular basis, actually, maybe uh, every couple of months. I'm uh, available. You're available. That would be great, Robert. As often as possible. Yeah, what we're trying to do on this program is educate people through stories of those folks who uh, have used uh, cannabis for their uh, medical benefit. And my co-host, Corey, is a perfect example who was supposed to be dead four years ago, and she's alive and well today. And uh, stories that you have, I'm sure, are are many. And I think what we should do is have you on again, and uh, you can tell some of those stories. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Take a look at my Jimmy McShane story on 1000 Watts magazine. Jimmy was a brain cancer survivor. And uh, an amazing, amazing story. We'll I've check. used cannabis for cancer 12 times now. Wow. Well, we'll definitely check that out, Robert, and we're very, very grateful for you coming on. Corey, isn't he uh, just an incredible guy? He certainly is. I could have sat here and listened to him all day. I bet he's got some pretty amazing stories that we haven't heard yet. Yeah. As I mentioned to Robert, we should have him back again uh, maybe in uh, five or six weeks, and he can tell some stories. And uh, one of the videos I was watching, he said uh, it was a lawyer said, Someone in the United States is arrested for marijuana every 37 seconds Mm. of every single day. It's crazy. It's insane. We'll be back tomorrow for another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. 
You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.